It's been uh, observed already that um, my presence here is um, an outworking of Bring Your Father to Work Day. (laughs) um, But I am am happy to be here. Um, My wife and I, with four, three young children, I should say, Uh, My wife and I, three three young children, came to live in Moore Lane, Chessington, in 1984. So I've been knocking around Chessington for a while. A great claim to fame is that I once scored for the church football team. Just one. Well, when I, when I was a young man in Bible college in Leeds, or theological college as it was called in Methodism, um, one of the professors of philosophy in academic circles was a, a published author. His name was Professor A.J. Eyre. Uh, and I had to try and thrash my way through a book called The Philosophy, the philosophy of Religion. 15 pages a week we were asked to read. And never did I undertake a task so tortuous than trying to get through those 15 pages. One of the persons who was described in the book was Professor A.J. Eyre. He was famous for a um, philosophy called logical positivism. I could hardly pronounce it, never mind understand it. It argued that unless something could be verified by observation, it was likely to be nonsense. If you can't see it, touch it, smell it, taste it, it's probably not real. And I think that that mindset, that philosophy, illustrates our ability to be thoroughgoing materialists. We can, all of us, by nature, treat the physical as though that were more important than anything else. And in fact, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that we human beings are materialists by nature. There's something in our hearts that makes us want to trust in the things that we can touch, see, and smell and taste. And the attraction of that, of course, is that it tends to put us in control. As an illustration, when the children of Israel followed Moses out of Egypt, remember that tremendous account in the book of Exodus when the children of Israel followed Moses out of Egypt into the desert they were following the God who'd spoken to Moses and had made a promise about their future they were leaving Egypt where they'd been used to gods that you could see and touch idols and statues and paintings had been all around them The whole of Egyptian culture was um, permeated by idolatrous worship and statues of of the most beautiful and magnificent works of art. But the God of Moses, for the most part, was invisible. Even his appearances were hidden in cloudy smoke up top of a mountain. Nobody actually got to see what he was like. The moment Moses went into the mountain and stayed there for several weeks in communion with this invisible God, the Israelites manufactured a God for themselves that they could touch and see. It was in the form of a calf. As soon as they got their hands on a material object to represent God, they threw a party 
and had a wild and, uh, and enjoyable time. Because most of us can be more impressed, sadly, by an unexpected and expensive gift than by the loyal kindness of someone who's close to us, things that we take for granted. We all tend to be materialists at heart. Ever since Adam and Eve lost the natural joy of daily fellowship with their creator, we've all been materialists at one level or another. We try to make life work with the stuff around us and the world around us. We try to put our faith and hope in created things more than our creator. A golden calf is somehow more encouraging than a golden promise. A new car is more likely to offer immediate happiness than a new insight into the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I speak from personal and, and sad experience. Now I'd like you to bear this issue of materials in mind as we turn today to think about this whole subject of eating bread. I'm going to start by talking about Jesus the divine baker. And I've got to say that Paddy's talk to the children raised all sorts of wonderful memories, not least of staying in the south of France at Ray and Doreen Smith's little apartment and being sent out every morning by the family to go to a little shop across the road and say, Trois baguettes, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> and then they would respond with some incomprehensible French asking for a certain amount of money which I would just hold out all the, all the proceeds of my wallet. I would just hold it out and ask them to take what they wanted. <laughs> but uh, bread is such a staple thing. Now this, this uh, story that was read to us describes Jesus' fourth miraculous sign from John's Gospel. The Apostle John is not recording all of Jesus' miracles. He, he tells us at the end of his book, I haven't got room to put everything down, but I've written these things down so that you can believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and in believing, find life in his name. If you look at chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, you see that um, this miraculous occasion is in mind. Some, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs. The signs he'd performed by healing the sick. So the, the, anyone who can perform miracles can gather a crowd apparently. Even if you pretend, if you're there fake miracles, you will get a crowd either on TV or um, somewhere else. And the crowd that were following Jesus enthusiastically, they were seeing things they'd never seen before and will likely never see again at the hands of this man. And they were beginning to think, maybe this man is the prophet that was predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament, the promised Christ. And they were beginning to speculate about the possibility of making Jesus their king. Maybe he's come to, to produce a new golden age for the people of Israel. And they were so taken up with all this, they were so busy following him that they neglected to bring food along. And they were caught up in a sensation. There were thousands of them, 5,000 men plus women and children in this crowd. And there was no food. 
So Jesus gives a test to one of his disciples, verse 5, where shall we buy enough bread for these people? 5,000 men plus women and children. Philip replies that if they could get 200 men to give a day's wages, it still wouldn't be enough to give these people a bite each. I was once at a football ground with 10,000 other people at Selhurst Park watching Manchester United play somebody or other and uh, well who they were playing doesn't really matter does it it's just the fact that Manchester United were playing and uh, I was there with uh, 9,999 other people but I, I, I had one plate of chips and I kept it all to myself because it wouldn't go around everybody Disciples look round at their resources. They find a young lad with five barley cakes. Barley was um, the bread for the poor people in Israel. They find a lad with five barley loaves and a couple of small fish of the sardine-sized variety. There's the scene. The creator of the universe has come to earth and is joined in the womb of the Virgin Mary to human nature. God the Son has become the Son of Mary. He created the universe in the beginning by speaking words of unimaginable power. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be stars and galaxies, and there were stars and galaxies. Let there be mountains and seas. He created the whole universe. He speaks and it comes into being. Such is his word. Now here... He takes hold of the boy's little cakes and his minute fish and he speaks. He gives thanks. And somehow, this meager little meal, this little lunch, snuffled from the lad's lunchbox, becomes enough to feed 5,000 plus people and have 12 baskets full left over. And what Jesus is saying is, look, I'm the divine baker. I fed the people of Israel in the wilderness uh, by giving them bread from heaven. I did that. And I'm the same person here who's feeding all these people with 12, there were 12 tribes back then in the, in the story in Exodus. Now there are 12 baskets full left over so Matthew, Mark, Luke and John the gospel writers they wrote this miracle down they were eyewitnesses they were, they were there they saw it with their own eyes they ate the bread and the fish they touched and tasted it they swallowed it they wrote it down so that we could clearly see that this man from Nazareth is the son of God the Christ the creator of the universe with his father has now come to earth it's a remarkable description it's a remarkable event pointing it's a signpost pointing to the true nature of this amazing man in the 19th century america's most famous agnostic colonel ingersoll suggested to his friend lou wallace that he write a romantic novel which would tear down the idea that jesus was divine wallace was already a successful writer and he took the project on and he began to research for this book that was going to destroy the beauty and image that, that was in people's minds of this Jesus. And as he researched the material, 
He became increasingly convinced of the need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And instead of writing a novel that ripped Jesus' reputation apart, he wrote a novel called Ben-Hur, which exalted the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Many people have looked at the New Testament, who've looked at the New Testament with an open heart, have come to love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Who else? This passage is asking us, who else can speak and by speaking feed a multitude? Jesus, the divine baker. Secondly, Jesus, the divine bread. If you look at verse 26, you'll see an example of this materialism I started with, verse 26. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Here are people following Jesus because they wanted to benefit personally from his abilities. They didn't want to be blessed by his heart, by his nature. They wanted to be touched by his generosity and his power. They were eager to make life better in the here and now, but they weren't looking beyond to the unseen world of eternity. So some of you here, maybe here this morning, because you're hoping that Christianity might somehow fill a hole in your experience. There's something missing from your life. You're not quite sure what it is. And your Christian friend or your Christian relative seems to have something that you kind of wish you had, but you're not so sure that you want anything to do with this Christianity. But you've not got it yet. You're, it's eluding you. And maybe the reason why it's eluding you is because you've not yet seen your eternal need, your real need, the second stomach that Paddy was talking about a few minutes ago. You know you've got problems here. You know that you're on your way to that appointment that we all have with death. And I live in a residential home for retired people. And I've become more and more aware that I'm living in the departure lounge. <laughs> I didn't think that was funny. <laughs> yeah, we lost our next door neighbor last week. Somebody else who's very close to death. There are only 36 flats, so it might be my turn next. We're on our way out. Maybe you're aware of that. And you've begun to wonder. You want. Maybe you're aware of being significantly unhappy. Maybe you're aware of a de depression and discouragement and heartache. I don't want to minimize those problems. I don't make light of them. Your hurts and your wounds are real. Your heartaches about the way life has worked out for you may be very strong. But this may be the deeper issue. I'm going to ask you to consider it. This may be the deeper issue that you're not in a personal relationship with the one who multiplied the bread and fish. 
You're thinking that if only you could get more stuff to fill your life up, some relationship, some money, some positions, a higher pension, some this or some that, maybe life would be better and your soul could rest easy. I remember being on a bus, my wife and I were, were kindly paid for to go on a, a cruise in the Mediterranean. And uh, we were on a bus on land, I hasten to say. We were on a bus on land, and the couple who were sitting opposite me were from Yorkshire. And uh, I don't hold that against them, but they were from Yorkshire. And I said, how many cruises have you been on since you retired? 42. They were doing three a year. If only we could get more stuff, have more cruises, have more money, have greater things in the house. Maybe you're a materialist. And my friends, you'll stay a materialist for the rest of your life unless you catch a glimpse in the person of Jesus into eternal realities. Consider verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The food that endures to eternal life. There's a food that endures eternally. If you were to have the privilege of satisfying every one of your physical and emotional appetites every day of your life and you went to eternity without the bread of life, the true bread of life, you would be a loser. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? All that stuff, all the world stuff, if he gained the whole world and lost his soul. Are you laboring? Is this your life? Are you working hard to get hold of stuff that you can't take with you? Stuff that doesn't last. Stuff that doesn't ultimately satisfy for more than a few days. Are you working for things that can't last? Isn't it wiser to work to get your hands on things that will last forever? That's a key question here, isn't it? But there's another question. What kind of work can you do in order to get your hands on the, the true bread that lasts eternally? Verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Here it is. Okay, say the people in the crowd, what sign, what miraculous sign will you give us in order that we might believe that God sent you? Our ancestors had Moses and he gave them bread from heaven. Are you going to top that? Jesus of Nazareth? Where is the bread from heaven? What are you going to give us? His reply is very simple. I'm it. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Verse 35. I am the bread of life. There can hardly be a greater claim in the entire world. And Jesus of Nazareth, the man from Nazareth, looks at a world in pain where men and women are hungry for love. They're hungry for reality. 
for meaning, for purpose, for significance, for joy, for substance. And he looks at us in our teeming millions, trying to find these things in religions and philosophies and stuff. And he says, there's only one way to feed your soul. There's only one way to prepare for eternity. And that's to receive me into your experience. Come to me. Feed on my person. Get to know me. If I said that, you'd want to lock me up. But this is what he says. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. That's extraordinary stuff. Look at, at, at verses 51 and 52 of this same chapter. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. If I said that, get to know me, John Tyndall, and you'll live eternally, you'd want to have me chained and put in a dark room somewhere so they'd never speak to the light of day. But here is a man who says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. He makes it clear in a later verse that these things, he's talking about spiritual needs and spiritual bread and spiritual thirst. But they are amazing words. Here's how it works. I've got two, just two principles to try and apply as we move towards the end. I'd like you to think about these things personally. The first one is acknowledge your hunger. You won't reach out your hand for this living bread unless you acknowledge how really empty and how hungry your soul is. You've been trying all sorts of things. You've been trying all sorts of people to fill yourself up, but in your more honest moments, you're willing to say, I'm running on empty. The wife I love, the husband I have, the football team I support, the money I have in the bank, the cruise I've booked in the Mediterranean later this year, those things, they're not really filling my empty place. You're running on empty. And there are these honest moments, maybe in the darkness of the night when you're waiting for sleep to come, when you know that you're empty and death is not far away. One of the lovely ministries of the Spirit of God is to persuade us that we are empty at the core of our being, but we need something from God himself in order to make life work. Something keeps drawing your attention to this, isn't it? You keep rushing off to your old stale remedies, but this won't go away. You want to take the big step, but you're scared because you're not sure what faith in Jesus might mean a few weeks or a few months down the line. I want to persuade you I want to persuade you that a step towards Jesus is a step into life. It's not a leap in the dark. 
It's a, it's a heartwarming step into the light. Acknowledge your hunger. You're willing to do that this morning? You made your way here. You're not quite sure why you came, why you're here. I want you to think seriously about this. Are you willing this morning to acknowledge how deeply hungry you really are? And how none of the stuff in your life is actually satisfying you. Acknowledge your hunger and finally approach the Saviour. Verses 53 to 57. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. They're shocking words. They sound like cannibalism. But they point us to the cross where Jesus would give his flesh and his blood for us in sacrifice. It's talking about one of the most precious Truths in the whole of Christian theology. Union with Christ. When you're engaged in physical eating, and Paddy's been so descriptive of, of um, Turkish flatbread and with, with, with beef, spiced beef laid on it, that I, I kind of feel I need to go and find some somewhere. <laughs> but when you, when you eat something like that, you bite, you chew, you taste, you swallow... And then you absorb. And the thing that you've taken inside yourself becomes part of you. It becomes energy. It becomes, it becomes food for your bones and for your cells and for your blood and for your brain. You bite, you chew, and it, you absorb. Well, union with Christ, what Jesus is talking about here, is the spiritual equivalent. The Christ of the Bible becomes the Christ in your heart by the work of God's Spirit. Your spirit comes alive. You approach him. You approach the Savior. You begin to talk to him. You begin to read the Bible because you want to get to know him. You associate with Christians who seem to have the secret. And slowly and surely, as you approach Christ, as you take hold of him by prayer and by reading and by thinking and by talking to people who know him, you begin to absorb him. He becomes to live in you. He becomes part of you. You become part of him. You have fellowship and companionship with him in the intimacy of your inner life. In some wonderful way, he becomes part of you and you are joined to him. Christianity isn't a set of, just a set of ideas that you believe. It's not a code of conduct that you sign up for. It's a person you enjoy. It's a person you enjoy. But my friends, you've got to approach him. Start talking to him. Start feeling your need. Start exposing your mind to the scriptures. Get to know him. Get to know Jesus in the New Testament. Come to one of these wonderful courses that was mentioned earlier. Be willing to take the risk of leaving your old self-centered remedies to try and make life work in order to surrender yourself to Christ and his lordship.
Ask God to make the scriptures live for you. The things are, these things are written that you might trust that Jesus is the Son of God and that by trusting you might have life through his name. In life, the multiplied fresh uh, bread and fish fed the multitude. It was a sign that he is the bread of life who alone can feed you into all eternity. Many years ago, uh, a man called Canon Hay Aitken, Church of England Canon, preached in Bristol. And at the end of his message, urged people to publicly confess Christ and seek his mercy. There was a brilliant young man in the audience called Horatio Bottomley who heard that message and rejected it. I'll run my own life, he said. He became a rich and famous lawyer and publisher. He exposed and prosecuted crimes of many people. He was an entrepreneur. At the age of 63, he found himself in prison for seven years for fraud. But along came a church army chaplain from the Church of England's church army. He visited him in jail and testified to Bottomley that many years earlier at the Colston Hall in Bristol, he'd heard Canon Aitken and had trusted Christ. And this church army chaplain said to him, since that time, Christ has been all in all to me. And Bottomley remembered that he'd been at that same meeting where this young man had been converted and chose Christ and became one who loved and served the Saviour. And later on, his verdict on his own life, bottom of his verdict on his own life, was a life without God is a life wasted. A life without God is a life wasted. Now, I'm not going to diss the Welsh. I, I, if, I, if, if there was such a thing as reincarnation, I really, despite the fact that I've got 58% Irish DNA, I would come back as a Welshman. I'd love to preach in Welsh. Oh, why am I saying that? Oh, I remember. <laughs> the, I don't know if you've seen the film A Man for All Seasons with... Uh, Thomas More, it's about Thomas More and Philip, is it Philip Schofield? No, Philip Schofield. One of the Schofields, what's his name? Paul Schofield playing Thomas More, I think it was. And Thomas More is being judged for treason and he's, his trial is going badly. And one of his old colleagues, one of his old chaps he'd mentored has given false testimony against him. And in exchange for this false testimony, he's given the governorship of Wales. So as he's leaving, as Richard Rich, having given this false testimony, is leaving the room, he's, sprout, he's got his, his badge displayed, his governorship. Thomas More reaches out and takes hold of it and says, Richard, it profits a man nothing if he gives his soul for the whole world. For Wales? <laughs> See, you always 
Lose your soul for something less than the whole world. For some of you, it might be a comfortable retirement. For others, it might be the accumulation of as much money as you can get, as many possessions as you can get, the best house you can afford. These things become the things that you trust in to make life work. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Acknowledge your hunger. Approach the Saviour. And maybe this morning it might be a good time for you to do that very thing. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we acknowledge before you that by nature we tend to trust in the things that we can see and own and taste and enjoy in order to make life work. Thank you for reminding us this morning that only by taking into ourselves him who is the bread of life can we have true and deep satisfaction in this life and glory in the world to come. Deal with our hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.